about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. These are the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. The spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, He is like the sun of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. The second reading tonight is from Romans 15, verse 7 to 13. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, good evening. My name is Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. Great to be with you this evening as we consider this passage from 2 Samuel 23. But before we do that, I just wanted to share something uh, is exciting this week. I've had a number of different opportunities to uh, just talk about Jesus. Um, Pretty extraordinary when God just sort of kind of gives them to you. Um, I was walking down the street, grabbed a coffee, walking back to my place, um, noticed a guy who I've met uh, several times, and I said, oh, hi, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just coming from the hospital. I said, oh, okay, you know, you okay? Well, actually, no, I'm not okay. I've just been there to get um, an infusion. I said, infusion, tell me more. He said, actually, I've just had a prognosis that uh, I've got two years left to live. Cancer is kind of riddled all through me, and they can't do much about it. And so all of a sudden, we're into a conversation, and I could leave the conversation saying, I'm going to continue to pray for you. And I just thought, wow, this is amazing. God gives me this wonderful opportunity just just to speak. Um, just to be able to talk with someone like that. The second one happened when I was in an Uber and I was sitting there um, chatting to a guy and um, he turned out to be a sort of a nominal Buddhist and we kind of started talking about things 
And we ended up talking about grace and God's gift of grace to us, that you don't have to earn your righteousness, that you don't have to earn your way to heaven. And it was just another beautiful opportunity for, uh, to be able to express God's love for me to someone else. So I just want to encourage you, if you get the opportunity, just take it. Uh, just say whatever God gives you to say at the moment. It's a really encouraging thing to be able to do, uh, to share God's love with other people like that and to be praying for them and to be with them in their particular circumstances. So let me pray as we come to this passage tonight. Father God, we thank you and praise you that you are such a, a wonderful God, that you give us so many opportunities to speak your name. And Father, we pray that as we uh, go about our day-to-day -day lives, that you would just help us see those opportunities and embrace them um, and point people to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're thinking about hope. And I guess the truth is that after nearly 2,000 years, we've been hoping for Jesus to return, and it hasn't quite happened yet. And so sometimes I can think that that actually leaves us weary. And I wonder whether that's because we live in an age that has promised so much and delivered so little. Uh, we've had the prom promise of freedom from all kinds of constraints, a freedom to be self-reliant individuals, a freedom to, uh, have, uh, uh, to get rid of unwanted connections and relationships, a freedom to have work that's interesting and meaningful, a freedom to not have families that are difficult to live in, all kinds of freedoms we're being offered, and yet when it comes to the reality of life, it doesn't actually feel like that. So often we find ourselves being anxious and timid and conformist, like sheep. So often we find ourselves struggling with just the everyday things of life. And so that great hope and the great advances, and there are so many advances, seem like actually they don't offer a great deal of hope. So I think we live in a time that has promised so much but often not quite delivered. Of course, the Christian answer to the problem of hope, or not the problem of hope, the Christian answer to hope is not to place our hope in what humans can do, but to place our hope in what God has done and is doing. Of course, there are many things to celebrate about what humans do, and we can be hopeful in some ways, but ultimately, the Christian is called to place their hope in God and what he is doing. Now, as we come to this la these last chapters in 2 Samuel, what we can see is that perhaps there too people had high hopes for their king, high hopes for what the King David was going to do for their people, and yet in many ways he's led them astray. And just last week we heard of that terrible situation with um, Bathsheba and the way that King David abused his power, also promising and yet... He dashed so many people's hopes. Well, as we come to this great story, perhaps one of the greatest stories ever told, we come to the end of our time with David and we've seen that he's had a difficult time, he's had suffering, he's accomplished many things and he's been involved in all kinds of wickedness. So what cause do we have for hope? Well, turn with me as we come to this last, uh, this second last chapter in, in 2 Samuel. You might just need to press thank you. And that's not working. 
Fabulous. Now that's... So there you'll see a diagram, and I want to explain the diagram just before we get going. Um, one of the way, ways the Bible works sometimes is it works not just as a linear progression of verses, but it also helps us think about things in different ways. Now, I don't often use this kind of diagram, but uh, John Woodhouse, who's a, t- a lecturer at uh, Moore College, saw this kind of pattern within the text that we have. And the way this pattern works is the first couple of verses um, can be read with the last couple of verses. Then the next couple of verses can be read with the second last couple of verses, all pointing forward to the main point in the text. And so it is kind of linear in the sense that you can read the text straight through, but there also is a sense in which you can read the verses, the beginning and the end verses, in comparison to one another. And so that's what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to be reading that way, reading the text in that kind of form. It's a a literary way that many of the um, texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament were written. Uh, What you might also notice as we go through is I've kind of divided the verses with 2a, 2b, things like that. 2a just means the beginning of the verse. 2b just means uh, the end of the verse. And the final thing to say is I've kind of jumped the gun I've used the text from the Bibles we're just about to hand out, not the text from the Bibles that you have. And so you might just notice some differences on the way through. Okay, back to this theme of hope and thinking about how this particular passage helps us lift our eyes and see that God is at work in all kinds of amazing ways. Now, these are the last words of David. Now, they're not literally the last words. It's not kind of sort of rolled over and this is the last words he spoke at that last moment. But I think what it means is they're the words that kind of sum up David's reign, sum up what God has been doing in David's reign. And so in that sense, they're the last words that David speaks. And he begins this way. Um, And as we go through, we'll see this heading, the Davidic Messiah's reign. We'll think about how um, he is the Messiah, the promised one. Passage begins this way. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. Now what's so interesting is that you can see the different titles or the different descriptions that David is given as a king. He's the son of Jesse. He once was this sheep herder. He once was this small little boy who had stones and a sling. Uh, He was once the son of Jesse, just kind of unremarkable in so many different ways. That's his heritage. But remarkably, he was exalted by the Most High. That's often a phrase used in the Old Testament for someone who fears God and worshipped God. But he's also, it's also suggesting that he rose above many other people around him. And it's God who made him exalted. He's a man appointed by the God of Jacob. His kingship didn't just happen because he appointed himself or even... Other people are just appointing him. He's appointed to kingship because of the God of Jacob. And the key here is that the God of Jacob is the God of the promises to the people of Israel. And so David is part of the promises to the people of Israel. He's part of the promises for what God is going to do with his people. And so not only is he exalted by the Most High God, he stands in history 
He stands in line for what God is going to do. He stands there ready to do what God has called him to do. And for that reason, he's the hero of Israel's songs. And we see that uh, writ large for us, actually, as we look through the Psalms. So often we hear of David's praises um, and what David has done. We also remember, you might remember that incident way back in 1 Samuel, um, when the women and men came out of the villages singing and praising David because of his uh, ability to uh, to, um, defeat the enemies around them and how Saul got really angry with him. Well, it's clear that even after all this time, he is the hero of Israel's songs. And so here is a king, high and lifted up. Yes, he's not been like this all the time. Yes, there has been uh, many times where he's failed as a king, but we've had glimpses of this king all the way through his life, all the way through with, with what God has been doing for him. Now, the thing about a king who's reigning in this way is that he acts. He has to actually do something. You can't just be a king and just sit there. You actually have to do something. And one of the things that David is called to be is someone who acts on God's behalf. And if we go to the end of the text, we get a sense of what that action is. What does he do as he reigns? Well, we read these words. But evil men are all to be cast out like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches the thorns uses a tool of iron or a shaft of the spear. They are burned up where they lie. Now, what this is, is a picture of judgment. Uh, We know that uh, David was called to be a judge, in this sense, to bring God's judgment, way back in Hannah's song. You might remember these words. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God is actually going to use David to judge those around them. Now, you might be wondering about this association of thorns here, but evil men are to be cast aside like thorns. Well, thorns are often thought of as things that bring pain and injury, but they're also thought of things in terms of judgment. And in other parts of the Old Testament, we see that thorns actually bring judgment. There's this passage in Judges chapter 8, where Gideon had defeated the Midianites, and he does something really awful. He, he took them, took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and the briars with them and taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Uh, you can imagine what kind of lesson that would have been. And the point being, of course, these thorns bring judgment and they're not to be gathered by the hand because they're so sharp and they bring pain. That's why they need a spear to be uh, brought together because you can't touch them. They're so uh, painful in what they bring to your hands if you pick them up. Now, just for a moment, as we think about this kind of picture of judgment and David's reign of bringing judgment upon others, what it's good to acknowledge is this is not easy for our ears to hear. Uh, So often we are struck by God's judgment and feel a bit squeamish about it feel a bit uncomfortable about it. And we don't have all the time tonight to actually address that whole issue. 
But it's worth just standing back and, and recognizing that God does act with judgment upon the peoples of, uh, around Israel and that God does bring his judgment to bear even on us. And so the truth is that when we reflect on these incidents, as we think about all that's taken place in the, with the people of Israel, and as we think about what King David did to those gathered around, we need to recognize that God has every right to bring about judge, judgment. He, after all, is God. He's the one who is in charge. He's the one who sees all. He knows people's hearts. He knows what we deserve. He knows how we act. He knows what is right and what is wrong. One of the challenges we have is that we need to trust God, that he is faithful and true. And that's the challenge, isn't it? We see these things, these things take, took place. God worked through David to bring his judgment. Is God fair? Is God true? Is God just? If your answer to that question is no, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. If your answer to that question is yes, then you need to trust that God knows what he's doing, even in the midst of judgment. I'm not saying that's easy to swallow, and I'm not saying we're left with sort of uncomfortable feelings at that point, but it's actually a matter of trust. Did you notice something else, though, as we went through this passage? This king, this Messiah, this Davidic Messiah's reign sounds like someone else's reign, doesn't it? If we go back to those first verses, Jesus was the son of Jesse. He was in that line. He was exalted by the Most High. He was a man anointed by the God of Jacob. He actually, in the end, is the hero of Israel's songs. In fact, you can read the Psalms that way. They are speaking of Jesus as he is the hero. And as we think about God's judgment, we notice that Jesus took our place. He was cast aside like evil men and he wore a crown of thorns. He took the judgment that was belonging to us and he stood in our place and died in our place so that we might be free. And so this whole picture points us forward to Jesus and what he does for us. As we continue to look at the text, the king not only acts, he speaks. Um, we started out that way. We heard about the king speaking and this is what he says. These are the words. The spirit of the Lord spoke through, through me. His word was on my tongue. Now the sense here is that when you breathe, you, when you speak, you breathe. And it's a bit like God breathing and speaking. And he's speaking like through David. Um, and so David's being prophetic in what he has to say. What does he say? Well, the God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me. Now, why is this important? Why is it important to establish that God is speaking through David, but it's the rock of Israel that says these things to him? Well, first of all, I guess the sense of rock is, is what we would normally think of. Rocks are sure and steady, something that can be built on. 
uh, rocks are secure. But I think here there's some other imagery going on as well. Um, the theme of the rock of salvation, the rock of Israel, is a theme that's throughout the Old Testament. And I don't know whether you remember that incident way back um, when Moses, um, soon after um, the people of Israel had left Egypt, and when Moses was gathering with his people and people were complaining uh, to no end about uh, their life and how, how they were now in great misery, and so they were testing God. They were saying, God, why did you bring us into these circumstances? They were grumbling, and in some senses, they were putting God on trial. And God says to them, I will stand there before you on the rock of Horeb. And on the other side, Israel is to stand. And in between, in between is Moses. Now as Moses stands there, he holds a staff. The staff is called the staff of judgment. In many ways, the staff should be used against the people of Israel because of their complaining of their willful disobedience to God. But what happens? He takes the staff and he hits the rock. It's as if the judgment of God falls on this rock. And what bursts forth? Living water for the people of God. And so that's why we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this, that rock was Christ, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And so this is a picture, in some ways, of the steadfast love of God found in a rock, his faithfulness found in a rock, who in the end is Christ. And so as he speaks, his words are sure and true. As he speaks, his words have a foundation to them, uh, mean that they can be believed. Now in a minute we'll come back to the middle section of what um, David has to say. But if we look at the parallel words... Uh, this is what we read. And you might notice they're slightly different to what we have in the text because uh, there's a number of different ways of coming to this particular point. But these are David's words. For what does not my house, for does not my house stand so with God? Well, actually, not all the time, David. Um, we've seen some pretty sordid things go on in your house and they don't always stand with God. For he has made me with an ever, uh, he has made with me an everlasting covenant and ordered in all things in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Well, actually, that's not all true too. But I guess what is central to these statements is that we've had glimpses of those things. But what is central is the everlasting covenant. This rock of Israel has made an everlasting covenant with his people. And the significance of that is that this covenant is not something that is broken by us. God is faithful to his covenant. Sorry, we do break it, but God remains faithful to his covenant. God continues on with his covenant. 
And God continues on with his covenant, even though David has done things that have led people astray. Despicable things, wicked things. And he's been under God's judgment. There is an everlasting covenant ordered so that things will be secure. And so you see this picture of hope. God will deal with the unjust. God's words are true and sure. God has a covenant with his people. And so that leads us to the middle of the text and to the main point of the text, I think. And this is what we read. When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of the Lord. Now it's a picture of a king that does things rightly. It's a picture of a ruler who has goodness in his rule. One who rules over all people. Uh, The word there means not just actually the Jews, but all people. And we heard that in our reading from Romans earlier on. It includes Gentiles. He is someone who will rule over everyone. And when he rules, he will rule the people with righteousness. Now, the human race has had many different kinds of uh, rulers, and David has been one of them. And rarely could you say that they've been characterized by complete righteousness. But the picture here is of a ruler who will do the right things by those he rules. He is righteous. And why is he righteous? Because he rules in the fear of God. He rules according to God's rule. He rules according to God's will. He rules according to God's purposes. And a king that is like this, a king that is righteous over all his people, that rules in the fear of God, David describes like this. He is like the light of a morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Ever woken up and seen the sun starting to rise and it's a cloudless day and the darkness dissipates and it becomes a beautiful, grand, wonderful day. The sky is blue, the sun is out and you get a sense of wonder and the magnificence of what God is doing. He goes on, it's like the brightness after the rain that brings grass from the earth. You know that moment when the clouds part. It's been raining, and there's rain on the grass, and you can almost see the grass growing because of the water and the sun. Oh, it's a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture of the way things are meant to be. It's a beautiful picture of hope. A beautiful picture that points us to one who will bring us that hope. And as we think about the one who will bring us this hope, we think again of Jesus. Jesus is the one who perfectly rules over his people in righteousness. Jesus is the one who rules in the fear of God. Jesus is the one who's like the morning at sun, is like the light of morning in the sunrise. He brings light into the darkness and he returns all things to what they should be. And it reminds me of that beautiful passage in Revelation chapter 1, 21. 
I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by this light. Do you see the hope? Do you see the promise of what will be? Do you see what God has planned for our futures? Does that not give us hope in the midst of the craziness of this world and the things that we face by day by day? And I want to suggest to you, as we grasp that hope, we can be utterly candid about the griefs and the suffering that we face because we know there is a hope. We can be real with one another because of that hope. It doesn't make us hide those things. It makes us acknowledge those things in light of that hope because it's an indestructible hope, a hope that can be held on to not because of what we've done, because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so this evening, as we listen to these words, just grasp that hope that we have in Jesus. And yes, deal with the pains and the difficulties and the, the, the terrible things of life. Recognize that they are there, but know that God is good and there is hope. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing he is a God of hope so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.